as we're a couple of weeks into Christmas, um, probably a good idea to, to give a shout out to the women uh, who are with us because, I mean, if we're honest, it's, it's kind of the women who hold things together pretty much all the time. But, but certainly during Christmas, all the schedules and the craziness and the list and the gifts and the decorating and the parties and the who's got to be where and the moms, I mean, moms just kind of carry all of that in a different way from dads. Not that we aren't important, dads, we're important. I'm with you, I'm one of you, but, but moms kind of make all of that happen. Uh, and you got the normal stuff still going on, right? You still got to make lunch, school lunches and you got to make sure everybody gets fed and, and there's ball practices and you, know, you still got to coordinate all of that. And then on top of that, you got all the craziness of Christmas going on. So uh, sh shout out to moms. Uh, when we come to the Christmas story, the, really the central character other than Jesus, Jesus is the central character, but, but next to Jesus is a woman. Uh, it's a mom. Uh, the, the one that we think about the most, we identify the most with the Christmas story is the, the mom-to-be, the, the female that's, that's in the story. She plays just a critically strategic role in everything that happens in the story. And that's not to say that Joseph wasn't important. Obviously, he was really important. It's, th think about the amount of trust and integrity and faith it took on Joseph's part to hear this story from your fiancé and, and then choose to stay and choose to defend and choose to protect. Huge role. Uh, uh, unbelievable guy, Joseph, but... Really, the heart of the story, the, 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 our whole perspective of the Christmas story in some ways, it all comes back to what Mary experienced and, and who Mary was uh, in the story. Just like moms are so, women are so crucial, critical to our Christmas today, this woman, this mom, was absolutely crucial and critical in the first Christmas. We don't really know why God chose this particular person, why God chose Mary. Um, were there other faithful women alive at the time? Yeah, pro probably. Um, were there other women who would have stepped into that role? Yeah, yeah, probably. But for some reason, reasons that God doesn't fully disclose to us, God decided this particular woman would be the one who becomes the mother of Jesus. And, and maybe at no other time, at no other time of the year, we think about Mary, we honor Mary. Now, to, to be clear, we, we don't worship Mary. Um, we, we don't believe that Mary has some special place in heaven or that Mary talks to God on our behalf. Jesus does that. Jesus talks to the Father on our behalf. Mary doesn't do that. We don't pray to Mary. But at the same time, we have this great honor for this woman who was chosen for this very specific role in human history and in salvation history as well. As I mentioned, we, we sort of view the whole story through her lens, through her perspective. We we wonder what it would have been like to be a teenager and get this visit from an angel and like your whole world is turned upside down and kind of unraveled right in front of your eyes. We, we feel the disappointment or the betrayal. 
when initially Joseph doesn't believe her or isn't willing to stick by her and then the comfort and the, the elation that Joseph has a change of heart after he's visited by an angel. Uh, we, we try to put ourselves in her place when at nine months pregnant, she has to travel to this foreign city without her extended family, without her parents, without her circle of comfort and, and support. And we try to wonder, what would that have been like as a teenage girl? Like, how would you be feeling making this long trip, walking the whole way or riding a donkey or however she got there? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly. But still, we know that's a pretty, that's a pretty big deal. And then... The, the disappointment at being rejected by the innkeeper. Um, if it had just been Joseph, like if it had just been the guy, we'd read the story and we'd, we'd go, you just need to suck it up, right? Just find a place. It's just a couple of nights. Get, the, get it done. Get back home. But it's not. It's, it's nine months pregnant, teenage girl, first pregnancy, right? So all of the unknowns that go with that first child and first delivery, and she's experiencing that not at her home, uh, not even in a nice inn. She's experiencing all of that in a stable. So really, we read this story in a lot of ways. We, we feel the emotion of this story in a lot of ways through the eyes of Mary. And again, it's not that Joseph isn't important. It's just that Mary has this unique role at Christmas. Now, at the first Christmas, when, during, during this time in the first century, religion in a lot of ways had, um, it had become somewhat robotic. And by that I mean that religious experience had become, well, you do these certain things and you don't do these other things. Here's a list of things that you do. Here's a list of things that you don't do. Uh, it had become, well, you go to the temple at certain times and you do the worship and then you go home. Um, you observe feasts and holidays and festivals and celebrations and you observe them at the same time every year. And if you do that, you're good. And if you don't do that, you're bad. It, it had become... Um, you like the right people and you dislike the wrong people. You hang with the right people. You don't hang with the wrong people. And so religion had become this, this very sterile, robotic, you do these things, you don't do those things. Um, it, was, it was a time when um, Israel was, if, if we're honest, it was not that important. All of the attention of the world at that time was on Rome. Like Rome was taking over the world. And so the Roman leaders, we have story. you read stories about them in your literature classes. Everything was about Rome, and yet here was this little out-of-the-way place that God was, God was about to do something in. Well, along with this kind of robotic religious experience, God was not giving messages to His people during that period. In the Old Testament, God would speak to His people through prophets and through priests. And so a prophet would show up and they would say, this is what God wants to remind you of. This is what God says to all of you. We think of Moses, right? one of the early ones. God gave His commands to Moses. God gave His words to Moses. And then Moses told all the people. And then 
prophets like Jeremiah come along and Isaiah and Hosea, Micah and Habakkuk, all of the Old Testament prophets come along and they're all speaking for God. God's giving them the message that he wants his people to have. Sometimes the kings did this. David was one of them, spoke for God. So God's giving messages 400 years before Christmas, the first Christmas, God stops giving messages. God stops speaking to his people. God stops saying, this is my new command, or this is my new instruction for you, or this is how I want to remind you of who I am and what I expect of you. God stops talking. That's why we don't have any books of the Bible from those 400 years, because God wasn't speaking. So there was no reason to write anything down or remember anything or memorize anything. There was this huge silence in the Bible. Now, When God is silent, when we don't feel God close to us, when we don't sense God's presence, when we don't think God's saying anything to us, we tend to make one of two mistakes. One is we just forget all about God. We figure, well, God must not be there because I don't ever feel Him or I don't ever hear Him or it feels like I pray and like He's not even there. One of the directions we take when that happens is we just say, well, I'm I'm just going to stop believing. I'm going to stop hoping. I'm going to stop thinking about it. I'm just going to stop. I'm going to quit God. I'm just going to quit God because God's not interested in me, apparently. And there were a lot of people during those 400 years that did that. Leading up to the first century, there were just a lot of people who just forgot God. They were just done with Him. Or they went back to other religions, to maybe their parents or grandparents, uh, other than, than uh, following God. They, they just forgot all about Him. The, the other thing that we can do during the, when God is silent is we can sort of make up our own religious experience. Um, we can replace God with something else. I'm not really feeling God, like I'm not, I'm not, God's not, I don't feel like He's with me. So I'll just make up these rules, and if I keep these rules, that'll be enough for me. I'll just count that as enough. For some people, when they feel distant from God or like God's not interested, they find other things to take God's place in their life, like other activities or hobbies or interests or, well, this thing makes me feel valuable or this thing makes me feel alive, and so I'm just going to do that. I'm going to put all my energy and emotion. And most people don't call that God. Most people don't say, okay, now this is my God, but realistically, they replace God with that thing. It's like all of their heart, all of their emotion, all of their time, all of their energy becomes that activity, that thing. Some people do it with a relationship. There's a relationship that makes them feel alive or makes them feel valued or makes them feel whatever. And that becomes the everything to them. And one part of their brain is saying, well, God, I don't ever hear from God. Like I don't ever feel God. So this is now what's most important to me. For some people, it's substances or substance abuse. Like this is my everything now. This is, I'm, this is first in my life. And again, rarely do people call that thing God. But when we feel distant from God, when we feel like God's not paying attention to us, when we feel like God's not close, we all have a tendency to substitute something else that we can touch or we can manipulate or we can get whenever we want it. 
Here's what, here's what I propose. Here, here, here's what I think. Our reaction when God is silent says everything about our faith. I mean, if you want to know where your faith is, if you want to know where your trust level is, where your belief level is in God, wait for those times when you don't feel like God's there. And do you keep trusting? And do you keep believing? And do you keep hoping? And do you keep pursuing Him? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 gives us this definition of faith. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And we might add, it's, it's confidence about what we do not see or hear. Like When everything's not right in front of me, like when I don't see the plan clearly, when I'm praying but I don't feel like I'm getting a lot of response, when I, when I come to church but I don't really feel what I think I'm supposed to feel or what I used to feel, I'm not really getting what I used to get. The question of where your faith is, where my faith is, what do I do then? Do I walk away? Do, do, do I substitute something else? Or do I just keep following after God and maybe until those feelings come back or maybe until I do hear His voice? Do I keep having faith? Now for 400 years, 400 years, God had been silent. His presence had seemed very distant and many people had walked away and many people had given up hope and many people had stopped believing that Messiah was going to come, but not Mary, not Mary. And here's how I know it. I know that Mary didn't stop believing because of the way she talked to God in the Christmas story. There's, this, there's a passage where we get Mary's voice firsthand. Like, they're her words. That's the thing about Joseph. You go back and read the Christmas story, we don't ever hear from Joseph. Like, we don't hear his actual words. He kind of appears. We kind of know what he's thinking. We know what he did. But we don't get verbatim, and Joseph said. We get that with Mary. And in Luke chapter 1, we get this extended moment where Mary kind of pours out her heart to God. And in one sense, it's a spontaneous prayer to God. But in another sense, it's layered with this deep understanding of who God is. That even through His silence, Mary had been faithful to follow and to pursue. Here's the thing about people who go through times when God is silent. And I'm not saying this is in the Bible necessarily. This is, this is kind of me. This is kind of my opinion. I'm... I'm less impressed by people who always talk about what God told them. And I'm more impressed by people who say, you know, I went through times in my life where I felt like God was silent, but I didn't give up. I went through periods in my life where I felt like God wasn't close, but I kept pursuing Him, like I kept reading His Word. I kept praying even though I wasn't sure God was listening. I kept walking. I mean, just for me personally... People who always like hear messages from God creep me out just a little bit. Like, I'm like, like, or like all the time, like he's saying stuff to you. Like, I mean, and I'm not saying God doesn't speak to us, right? I'm a pastor, right? Okay, God does give us direction. God helps us make decisions. God gives us guidance, right? I'm not saying God doesn't speak to us through his Holy Spirit at all. I'm just saying like this constantly 
turn right here. You should park in that spot. I don't know. I don't get that from God. And, and honestly, when somebody does, I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm a little leery. You know what impresses me, though? You know, you know what I'm in awe of is somebody who will say, I went through this period in my life, and it didn't feel like God was with me, but I knew He was. And I kept praying, and I kept walking, I kept reading His Word, and, and, and I kept just claiming that, that He said He's always with me. And, and then I kind of came out of that season, and God revealed Himself in a new way to me. That's the person that I like hanging out with. And that's kind of the way Mary was. 400 years, nothing from God. Not, Mary's whole life up until this moment, nothing from God. And yet Mary seems to know so much about who God is. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. It may be in your Bible, it may be called Mary's song or maybe Mary's prayer. We sometimes refer to it as the Magnificat. That's the, that's the first word of what Mary says in the Latin translation. And it's been turned into a song like hundreds, maybe thousands of times. Really traditional liturgical type churches will sing this in the Latin. It's that popular. This is what she says. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary's not saying that the soul and spirit are like two different things and you kind of have to figure out which is which. That's not, that's not what she's saying. Mary is saying like everything on the inside of me rejoices in God. Like Everything on the inside of me is satisfied with God. Even though I haven't heard Him my whole life until just recently, everything on the inside of me is fulfilled by God rejoices in God, takes pleasure in God, is thrilled with God, is deeply satisfied with God. And look, her life was crazy at that moment. Like everything she expected about her future had been rearranged and had been changed. Nothing was as she thought it was going to be. And yet in this moment, Mary says, you know what? Everything on the inside of me is satisfied with who God is, rejoices and who God is, you and I need not only that perspective, but we need moments where we just say, God, I want to be reminded that you are enough, that you are everything for me. I'm satisfied in who you are and what you're doing in my life. My soul and my spirit glorify you and rejoice in you. It's one of the reasons what we do on Sunday morning is so important. It's one of the reasons you being here, me being here today is so important. Because Christmas is doing what Christmas does, right? It's fast and furious and it's going to get uh, more crazy over the next two weeks. And we need moments where we push the pause button and we come together and we say, I just want to say, my soul, everything inside of me is satisfied with you, God. Everything inside of me rejoices in who you are, is thrilled by you, finds pleasure with you. And Mary did not understand everything that was going to happen. Like she didn't understand the roadmap or the future or what was next or what was coming. But on the inside, she was satisfied with who God was and what he was doing in her life. Then she goes on to say in verse 48, For he, for God, has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. God's been mindful. In other words, if I could paraphrase it, God notices me. Ever think of God as the great noticer? 
Like God is the great noticer. Like nothing escapes his vision. No person, no life escapes God's view. God's the great noticer. And Mary understood this. Like you've, you've seen me. And there was no reason for anyone to see Mary. Again, out of the way place, unimportant historically, unimportant politically at this time in history. Nothing going on. Small town girl. And Mary said, you, you notice me. You see me. God notices. Not just, not, not just the rich and famous and the powerful. God notices all of us. Mary said, you notice me in my humble state. Again, there's no reason for you to see me, but you see me. There's no reason for you to pay attention to me, but you pay attention to me. God is the great noticer. We're not always good at noticing, uh, especially at Christmas, because the chaos is so much magnified at Christmas. The the, the traffic is more, there's people everywhere, everybody's rushing and trying to to get the gift and get out and, and pay and get back in the car and find a parking space. I mean, especially at this time of year, we're not good at noticing. We're better at avoiding eye contact at this time of year, right? Like some of us are professional eye contact avoiders at Christmas. Like when you're, you're getting ready to park and there's one space and somebody else is coming and they want that space. And you just don't make eye contact, right? And you don't put your foot on the brake. You just keep, you don't ever slow down. You just keep moving. You don't make eye contact. You pull in there, you get out and you go, oh, did you want this space? I didn't see you, right? We're professional eye contact avoiders. The Red Cross person, bless their heart, ringing the bell. You don't have any change. You don't have any money or you're not going to give it to her. So you like look at your list. You're looking for a buggy. Like you're looking everywhere but at her. Or him ringing the bell. Right? We're professional. The mall kiosk worker. Right? Middle of the mall. Crowded mall. Mall kiosk worker. You get as close to the wall as you can get, don't you? Now you're all the way against the wall. And you're not making eye contact. Which doesn't matter because they come braid your hair and rub lotion all over you. <laughs> and they're filing your fingernails. And you're going down the... And that's us. Christmas time. We're, we are professional... Eye contact avoiders, not God. God's a noticer. God, you, you see me. I, I, don't know whether you, I don't know whether you feel seen this Christmas or not, but I'm telling you, you you're seen. I, I don't know if you're seen by your family or your boss or, or everybody on earth that you want to be seen by. You know who sees you? God sees you. God notices you. And whatever, whatever circumstances you're in, we... We come here, all of these people, we, we, all of us got different circumstances, right? We all go back to different homes. We've got different fears and different disappointments. We have different struggles. We look at our life and we have different failures. We're looking at Christmas coming up and some of us are not sure how that's going to work and family's going to be together and it's not going to be great and there's tension. And Like you're not walking through this Christmas season unnoticed. God's the great noticer. And he sees you and he knows you and he's with you whether you feel that he is or not. For you have noticed me in my circumstances. That's what Mary said. And you could say the same thing. You could put your name in Luke chapter 1 verse 48. For God, you notice me in all of my circumstances. You see me. I am not unknown. She goes on. 
verse 47. For he, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He sees me, he notices me. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. So Mary, responding to the fact that she's seen, she's noticed by God, she just begins to talk about all the things God's done in her life. You've, you've given me this, and you're this kind of God, and you're merciful, and you're good, and you put these things in my... She just begins to list, but these are all of the good things in my life. Chaos is still out there. Right? There's, there's no guarantee that her family really understands what's going on. Right? There's, there's nothing that tells us her family had come to grips with the fact that their teenage daughter's pregnant and she's not married. We don't know that any of that has settled down. And in the midst of that, Mary's saying, God, you've been so good to me. You're so merciful to me. You love me. You've done all these things for me. If you want to make a list and check it twice this Christmas, that's the one to make. The list of, God, this is what you've done for me. God, my life's not perfect. Everything's not arranged in the order that I want it to. But I can say some things for sure. You've given me this, and you've put this person in my life, and you've given me this relationship, and you've taken care of this issue in my life, and you've been with me, and you notice me, and you listen to me even when I'm not sure you're listening. I know you're listening because you promised to listen. And if you want to make a list, if you want your Christmas to change, if if you want your Christmas to be filled with joy, make that list. Before we make the list of, well, here's all the things I need now. Here's all the things I want now. Let's make the list of, here's all the things that are already in my life. Here's all the good that you've already given to me. The the psalmist in Psalm 126.3 writes, The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. He's just done great things for us. And because of that, there's joy in my life. Really, one of, the, one of the quickest paths to joy is remembering all the things He's done for you. And one of the quickest paths away from joy at Christmas or any time is forgetting all the things that He's done. Forgetting all the good things that God's put into your life and into your experience and into your relationships. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy because of it. That was Mary. You notice me? You've done great things in my life. I'm so grateful for what you've done in my life. And that's producing joy in my life. And then she goes on in verse 51. God has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. Mary reminds us in this part, Mary reminds us that God's always performing an upside down work in this world. You notice me? You've done great things for me. Oh, and you're doing great things in the world too. And they're upside down things. Mary reminds us that things are not always the way they appear on the surface. We have classes and People who are in and people who are not in and people who have and people who don't have. People who are successful and aren't successful. People who have money people don't have money. Mary in this prayer reminds us God doesn't view the world and success and making it the way we view all of that. God's in the business of turning things upside down because what's on the inside counts so much to God. Mary's living at a time. I mentioned it 
where um, there are corrupt politicians. Imagine living in a time like that. Um, there, there's a, a, oppressive rulers. There are elites who benefit from power. And there are people who are victims of power, who are oppressed. Uh, the, the, the Roman leader at the time, really kind of a crazy person, kind of a psycho person, murdered a bunch of his family because he felt threatened by them, Par- totally paranoid leader. All of this is going on, and here's Mary, like a teenage girl, and she knows so much about God that she knows, God, you're not going to let this injustice go on forever and ever. You're not going to let the weak be oppressed forever and ever. You're not going to let people go without forever and ever. You're the, you're the God who turns things upside down. Like You step into, God steps into hopeless situations and gives hope. God steps into chaotic situations and brings peace. God is the God that can take the impossible and make it possible. Not just 2,000 years ago, like, not just in the chaos of the first Christmas, not, not just in this weird Roman part of the world, but in, in our lives too. In your life and in my life, He is the God that can turn things upside down, that can defend those who are without a defender, who can give, give hope to those who are without hope, mainly because He sees us. Like he sees you and everything about you. He sees the relationships. He sees the person or the circumstance that's on your heart today, like that thing that's breaking your heart today, that thing that's heavy on your heart today. He knows that. He sees that. He's at work in that. And maybe you don't hear him right now. And maybe you don't feel him right now. And maybe you aren't sure what he's up to right now. But 2,000 years ago, there was a teenage girl that said, no, God's in those things too. God's at work. You're not alone. You're not fighting these battles by yourself. Because that's what he does. He enters into the hopeless situation and brings hope and brings peace and brings joy. Now, Think about the story of Christmas. Is that God is not only a God who enters in and turns things upside down. God's called us to imitate Him in that work. God's called us in 2017, more than 2,000 years after the first Christmas, to join Him in this work of bringing peace where there's not peace and hope where there's not hope and healing where there's brokenness and defending those who are without defenders and standing up for the vulnerable and the oppressed. That's how we enter into Christmas is that we become a part of this. We become a part of God mending a broken world, God healing broken people because that's what He does. And that's what He's asked us to do as a part of It's a part of Christmas. Yes, the psalmist was right. God has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. But God also wants to do great things through us. God is not just in the business of doing good things for me, but as God is doing good things for me, He's calling me to do good things for others. 
as an expression of Christ, as an expression of the Messiah, as an expression of the one who would grow up and be a noticer himself. You read the story of Jesus. And as he becomes a young man, he becomes a great noticer. Like he notices all the people that nobody else notices. The people that his disciples walk past, Jesus stops and notices. Bless you. He notices the sick and the blind. He notices women on the fringe of society that everyone else has cast aside. He notices men that everyone else hated. He notices children, and nobody noticed children during that day. Jesus becomes the great noticer. And so as we leave today and we engage in Christmas, we're called to be noticers this week. And as we notice, God's going to move us at different times in different circumstances to step in and turn something upside down. That's one of the callings of Christmas, that you would notice this week and that you would be a part of turning something upside down. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the great noticer. We're busy. We have too much to do to notice. We're in too big of a hurry. We have too many responsibilities. God, help us to be noticers. Help. God, I pray that when people are around us, they feel seen. They feel known. And in those moments where things are not as they should be, work through us to turn them upside down. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.